Thank you. Thanks all very much for being here and to the organisers. Well, I've grown my hair longer since that picture was taken, haven't I? I'm going to talk slightly differently to uh, the other speakers. It's not going to be about technology directly, but about the way that technology is changing politics. Uh, and the reason is, I, I work, as you heard, for a political think tank. It's called Demos, based in the UK. And we were set up in the early 1990s to try to slow down the decline of trust and confidence in our formal political institutions. We saw that people were getting fed up with the judicial system, with our members of parliament, with our justice system, and we saw this was a big problem. Set up in the early 1990s, Demos has been a complete and utter failure in that mission. I don't know why we're still in business, because all the statistics point in this direction, downwards. The number of people, this graph should terrify anybody who is a Democrat, because it shows, it was a survey done a couple of years ago, and it shows the proportion of people who believe it is essential to live in a democracy, this survey was done just a couple of years ago, broken down by decade of birth. And so you can see that people that were born in the 1930s, people in their 70s and their 80s, uh, 70, 80% of people thought it was essential to live in a democracy. Every decade, with a couple of exceptions that you move forward and people get younger, the numbers go down. People born in the 1980s, so I'm not talking about teenagers here, I'm talking about people in their 20s and 30s, only 40, 20, 30% of them in many countries think it's essential to live in a democracy. Democracy is in crisis. And so when I saw this statistic, and many others like it, it was so clear to me that there was appetite for change, doing politics differently, rebelling against the status quo. And so I set out to find out what some of those fringe political movements might be, based on the rather obvious notion that all the things we now accept to be common wisdoms and our truths about politics were once upon a time considered to be radical, to be dangerous, to be unworkable. And I spent my time with these various different groups all across the political fringes. And here's the important thing I want you to take away. The last 18 months have been incredibly turbulent politically. We can all agree on that. But it's just the beginning. I really don't think we have seen the last of this. I think things are going to get far more turbulent before they get calm again. We are entering into an age of great radicalism in politics, and I'm going to give you three stories of where that might lead. And each one is kind of based on a further and further away timeline. I'm going to start with one which I think is going to show you how the next four or five years are going to look, then the next 10 years, then the next 15 years. And each one's going to seem more and more ludicrous. But that's the thing about radical politics. They start off sounding ludicrous, and then one day they become our norms. And each of these stories is um, about technology and movements that are using technology to change politics. And we're going to start with Beppe Grillo. You guys know Beppe Grillo? I think most of you will. In the UK, literally no one has heard of this guy. Just shows how insular we are in our politics in this country, not this country, in my country. Beppe Grillo, as most of you, if not all of you, will know, 
is a very famous Italian comedian. In the 1980s, he was probably the most famous comedian in Italy, made a really funny joke about the then socialist Prime Minister Craxi and got banned from television. I think the joke was, if everyone is in China is a communist, then who do they steal from? Something, I didn't really get it, but... <laughs> banned from television, became, and, and, and started becoming very interested in the internet. And he thought, well, Italian politics is so corrupt. You know, the big parties are really controlled by a tiny number of people, and the media is controlled by the same people, especially Silvio Berlusconi. But with the internet, we can change all that. We, can, we don't need political parties anymore. We can communicate without going through the mediated parties that run our democracy. We can institute some form of direct democracy, where people can just decide and vote on every single thing that matters to them. And we don't need media anymore. We don't need these big journalists, because they're always biased anyway. And we can have citizen journalism. And everything's going to be fantastic. And in that sense, he was mirroring some of that optimism you heard earlier today of the 1990s, when everybody believed that if only we were connected, if only we had more information, then our politics would become nicer, smoother, kinder, more informed. Which all sounds like a bit of a joke now, doesn't it? But that's what everybody thought. And Beppe Grillo, though, he understood that the internet was going to change politics long before most people. And in 2009, he says, I'm going to set up a new movement. It's, we're not going to, we're not going to, it's not going to be a party, it's going to be a movement, the five-star movement. And unlike the traditional parties, we are going to have a blog. This is the blog. Actually, this is the registered official headquarters of the five-star movement. It's a blog. BepeGrillo.it. And he said all the big decisions that we make as a movement will be held here, and everybody who's a member of our movement can vote. I actually didn't mean to have a picture of Angela Merkel up there. That's a complete coincidence. Everybody who's a member of this movement gets to vote on it. And you know what? Everyone who likes this movement should set up meet-up groups, little online meet-up groups in their cities, where you can go and meet in real life and talk about your political ideas. And if you like, you can put forward somebody to stand for election, and they can be voted here to see if they become our official candidates. It's in 2009. And everybody said, that's ridiculous. Nobody, nobody is going to vote for this stupid party led by a comedian where all the ideas are based on a blog. Roll forward to early 2013, the general election in Italy, and one in four people votes for the Five Star Movement. It's three years old. One in four people, a tsunami washed over Italian politics. Nobody could believe what had happened. And the Five Star Movement became the single largest party in Italy. This is how the internet can completely revolutionize politics. But here's the thing. On the one hand, Beppe Grillo managed to mobilize thousands of people into politics, people that had never been interested before, started getting involved because they thought, at last I get to have a say, I get to vote on this blog, and I feel like I'm part of a movement. And, you know, it completely transformed the demographics of the Italian parliament. You suddenly had all sorts of ordinary people being voted in as representatives. 
One of them was a beach performer. One of them was an astrophysicist. One of them had been unemployed. These were the new MPs coming in through the movement. Remarkable. And I think an amazing sign of what the internet can do for our politics. And yet, just as in the 1990s, has it made politics more informed, or kinder, or smarter, or wiser with Beppe Grillo? I'm not so sure. He's a comedian. He insults everybody. He called Silvio Berlusconi a psychopathic sex dwarf. This is amazing shareable content. This is why he's so popular. But it's not exactly constructive for the necessary compromises required in politics today. But this is the sign of what our politicians are going to look like. Donald Trump, in a sense, is the same. The ability to use outrage to generate media coverage in order to get support. The other thing, this blog that he runs and owns, while he promised to smash down hierarchies and replace it with this blog where everybody gets to be involved, yeah, wonderful, wonderful on the surface, but dig a little deeper. The blog is run by a handful of people known as the staff, that nobody knows who they are. They work out of an office in Milan. If they don't like something that you have put on the site, they can just delete it instantly and delete your account too, and you've got no real way of uh, challenging them. All the wording of the actual polls that are put on here that members can take part in, they are all chosen by the staff, not by the ordinary members. So what's happened here? Well, yes, more people involved, wonderful, but rather more obstinate, rather more aggressive, rather more polarizing, and creating brand new centers of power that are often every bit as controlled and hierarchical as the ones they claim to replace. And I think this is the direction of our politics in the next few years. The demand for more direct democracy using the internet is going to become unstoppable. Because the difference between our daily lives and all the amazing choice that we have and our political lives, frankly, is getting to be absurd, especially among those young people for whom 20 30% only believe that democracy is essential. It's absurd. We have to start using the internet to bring people in. But this is how it's going to start to look, so be wary. All right. That's like the next five years, I think. That's where it's going at the moment. But I want to move a little bit further down the line, the next 10 years. And I think this is going to be the age of the transhumanist. Are there any transhumanists in the room? Not a single trans... Maybe you're too embarrassed to put your hands up, don't worry. Transhumanists are people who believe we can and should use science and technology aggressively to radically improve the human condition to merge with the machines, to slow down aging, potentially end death entirely, to use artificial intelligence so that we don't need to sit around doing boring jobs, but we can all just spend our days attending lovely conferences like this. And we can use cryonics to you know, massively improve our physical capabilities. These are the transhumanists. And transhumanism has been a very, very small academic movement for a very long time. And then in 2015, this guy gets in touch, called Zoltan Istvan. That is actually his name, Zoltan. I mean, it's like a perfect name for a transhumanist, but it is his name. <laughs> and he says, 
I want to bring the message of transhumanism to the people. It's far too science-y and academic-y. And the way to do that, he said, is to run as a presidential candidate in the 2016 American election, as the leader of the transhumanist party. If you don't buy my book, he didn't win the election, so don't worry, about it. I can give you that line now. Someone else, another radical won it. But he sent me a video, a one-minute video, to show what this campaign was going to be about. And I'm going to show you that video. Hi, my name is Zoltan Ishvan, and I'm the 2016 U.S. presidential candidate of the Transhumanist Party. And I am going to be driving a 40-foot coffin bus across America, promoting transhumanism and life extension. It's something that's going to work. It's something that's going to wake up America and get people thinking that perhaps we don't have to die. Perhaps we can use science and technology to overcome our biological mortality. The immortality bus is a wild idea to traverse the United States, uh, hopefully getting people to think about um, using science and technology to overcome aging, to overcome death, and to uh, embrace transhumanism. We're going to have campaign drones, we're going to have a robot, we're going to have virtual reality gear on board, we're going to hopefully have a biohacking lab on board. I mean, it's going to be crazy fun stuff. Please support the Immortality Bus, please support my campaign, and let's hope this, uh, this uh, 40-foot coffin bus can turn into a big success and uh, really get people thinking about how we can use science and technology better in our lives. <laughs> I never get bored of watching that video. So obviously I see this and I think, right, I'm a, I'm a writer. I mean, the first thing I need to do is get myself on that damn bus. That sounds amazing. So I travel over to California, to San Francisco, of course, where this tour is going to start and I get on the bus. But you know, he said, are we going to have campaign drones and VR headsets and robots and all that? Didn't have any of that stuff. We had a bus full of journalists like me who had been suckered in in the same way by this promise of writing about a guy who wants us to live forever on a 40-foot coffin bus. I mean, it just sounds amazing, doesn't it? What a story. There it is. That is the bus. That's me in the middle. And the strangest thing started to happen, OK? The strangest thing started to happen. He understood he needed to put on a, a ridiculous campaign to get media coverage, because that's the only way in America, when you're a new candidate, that you can get any kind of traction. It's impossible to break into the Republican-Democrat stranglehold on politics. But the strangest things would happen. On, on like day three, the immortality bus paint was kind of peeling away a little bit. <laughs> so we go into a Home Depot, which is where you buy all your hardware for your house, to buy some paint, right? the most boring thing imaginable. So Zoltan walks into the Home Depot, and he's followed by a camera crew, Two camera crews, in fact, and three of us with notepads following him around, which means everybody stops him and says, who are you? And he says, well, I'm Zoltan Istvan. Why are you being followed by a camera crew? Because I'm running as the leader of the transhumanist party for the presidential election. Wow, what's that? And they start talking, which we then start writing about. And I'm thinking, the only reason we're writing about stuff is because we're here making this happen. And this is how it works with radical movements. Journalists often create the movements that then come to, into being because we're obsessed with these ridiculous stories. Right, we then move on to a biohacking lab where uh, 
Zoltan, this is, these are biohackers. This is a group of people that were, maybe 30 people, that in a garage in their houses were injecting themselves with RFID chip implants and all sorts of other magnets and all sorts of stuff. And Zoltan decides, because he's the leader of the Transhumanist Party, he needs an RFID chip implant into his hand. All right, and he gets it, there it is, that's him getting it. And it means that he can unlock his phone <laughs> by like doing this. That's how, with this little chip implant. But this is technology for you, right? The problem is RFID chip implant that he had only worked on an iPhone and he didn't check because he's got a Samsung phone. <laughs> so it didn't even work. So we have, we have a few creases to iron out in our wonderful future. On we go, and indeed, Zoltan makes it all the way to Washington, D.C., and my goodness, do journalists fall in love with this guy? He gets covered by every single media outlet of note. The BBC does a huge feature on him. The Spiegel writes about him. The Guardian writes about him. The Financial Times, The Verge, the mighty... New Yorker does a big feature on Zoltan Istvan running for president and Salon and so on and on. Here's the problem, okay? Every single journalist, me included, I wrote an article about this for the Daily Telegraph. We all wrote it in the same way. That Zoltan Istvan is running as the leader of the Transhumanist Party, right? I looked into this later. The Transhumanist Party didn't exist. He made it up. Now, it doesn't sound like a big deal, Right, but it's a very big deal, because if you raise money for a political party that does not exist, you're breaking federal law, which Zoltan was doing. Did any of these newspapers bother checking whether there was even such an entity as the Transhumanist Party? No, of course not. Did the, New the New Yorker has the most famous fact-checking department in the world. They didn't even check. Because why? Because the way that media works now is that we have to create this amazing content and get all of these shares and we're competing with lots of other people. We don't have time to check the little details. And that's really important when it comes to radical movements because they understand that and they will play on that. So this seems like an absolutely ludicrous campaign. But here is the problem. The things that Zoltan was talking to me about in 2015, Artificial intelligence is going to completely reshape our economies, he said. And you know what? Forget about marching robots going sentient, like in Terminator. It's not about that. It's about the way that our economies will have to be radically restructured. Big data and artificial intelligence, the logic of it, is that anyone who is very good at doing big data or machine learning technology is going to be very good at doing that in almost any industry. So we're going to create massive mega-monopolies who are incredible at big data, and some of the middling jobs in society that are so essential, the backbone of our middle classes, will wither away and be replaced by either very highly paid, lucrative jobs in the tech sector or very badly paid jobs in the service sector. And if anyone's been to San Francisco lately, they've probably seen what that actually looks like. And he says, this is a big problem, because people are going to start turning against technology. People are going to start smashing it up. We're going to have neo-Luddites on the streets, and we desperately need a political answer to these questions. We need stuff like universal basic income. We need governments to invest millions in training people to make this transition. 
And he said the same thing about life extension. He said, we're gonna, you know, life extension technology is improving at an incredible rate. And most of the investment is coming from large tech firms looking at ways to extend our life expectancy. And pretty soon, we might be able to live to 120, maybe even 130. But who's going to own that technology? Who's going to have access to it? What's it going to mean to our retirement age? What's it going to mean for our education system if everyone lives to 130? And he said, no. And I thought, Zoltan, sh shut up, mate. You are full of rubbish. What are you talking about? This sounds like science fiction to me. And you're riding around in this stupid bus with a made-up political party talking about this rubbish. And in the last six months, I'm looking at the news thinking, Jesus, maybe Zoltan might have been right about some of this stuff after all. Maybe we shouldn't have just discarded him as a joker. Maybe, sure, a lot of the things he says are a bit ridiculous, but maybe he's onto something. Maybe we should listen to some of the things he's saying and start thinking about them. And that's the lesson of these radicals. You can easily laugh at them. You can easily ignore them. But it's much more valuable to listen to them and ask yourselves whether there's something you could learn from them. That's Zoltan, final story. We're 20 years away now, and we're talking about brand new nations. And Liberland, the world's newest country that you've never even heard of yet. This is Liberland. This is the Croatian and Serbian border, and the, sev and the little seven square kilometer of shaded red land is Liberland. It's disputed territory, that little patch of land, but it's disputed in a very unusual way because Croatia, over here, says that bit of land belongs to Serbia, and Serbia, over here, says that bit of land belongs to Croatia, which I don't think has ever happened in the history of international diplomacy. But, but the reason is, just so you know, after the Croatian War of Independence, the de facto border was set at the Danube River which Serbia was very happy about. Croatia was not happy about that border. They said the border should be this black line here, which is the 19th century course of the Danube River, which would put a lot of Serbia into Croatia, but would put this little patch of land into Serbia. And Serbia says, no, thank you very much, we don't want it. So this is known in international law as terra nullius, uh, land that's not claimed by a sovereign nation state. There's hardly any of it. Every other bit of the world, apart from a tiny bit of the Saharan desert and the poles, are uh, claimed by sovereign nation states, apart from this one. And you're not going to believe this, but under international law, the first person who turns up there and sticks a flag in the ground gets to claim it as their own, which is what this guy did. Why not? <laughs> in 2015, Vit Jedlicka, and that's the first lady, his wife, um, a radical libertarian from Prague, looking for somewhere to build a new nation based on the principles of libertarian thinking. And he hears about Liberland, and he drives to Liberland, plants a flag in the ground, and declares it to be a new republic, sends out official-looking letters to every single head of state in the world, writes a constitution, gets himself elected as president by the small number of friends that he's with. And then suddenly, everyone starts writing about it. And 200,000 people apply for citizenship of this new place. Why? Because Liberland is going to have voluntary taxation. 
No one is going to force you to pay tax. There's going to be no central authority forcing you to pay tax. If you want to pay tax, that's fine. A group of you over here want to buy a school or something, you can go and commission it from the free market. You don't need to worry about it, but you guys, you're not going to have to pay for that rubbish. You can buy a road instead or whatever you want. Sewage works, I don't know what we need. And everyone thinks this is amazing. And he says it's not only just about voluntary taxation, because taxation is theft, that's what all radical libertarians say. It's also about freedom. There should be no restrictions on what you can own, what you can put in your body, what you can say. And we're going to have a tiny, pathetic, weak government that really is only going to be able to meet once every year for about a month to make sure that they can't enforce the will of the majority on the minority. Anyway, under international law, the way you become a new country is if other countries agree that you are a country. It's a total cartel run by the UN. This is being recorded, right? So I don't want to... Didn't mean that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a cartel. I mean, that's how you become a country. And so Witt's job is to try to convince other countries that he is a country. So the problem is this. So this is Liberland. And the minute Witt does this, and he puts his flag in the ground, and he sends these letters, and 200,000 people start applying for citizenship, the Croatian police block the road into Liberland, because they're really annoyed about all this. So we hold the one-year founding anniversary of Liberland in Osijek, just here, because we can't get into Liberland. Actually, we tried later. We went over into Serbia and took a boat back into Liberland, and the police were waiting for us, so we couldn't even get there. So we hold this, and, 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 and what Vit is trying to do is make it look like there is a country in waiting. So I turn up at their conference in Osijek, and there's like a slightly smaller room than this, and about 100 of the world's leading libertarians. And the thing about it is that it, you would imagine that this is already a country. There is a minister for finance giving a talk about the 2018-29 budget. <laughs> there is an air traffic controller. There is a representative to Pakistan. There are everybody dressed up like their ministers of state. And they have all of the brochures to, you know, make it... And they have a football team, and they have a wine, and they have a beer. And they were holding the um, amazing architectural competition about how Liberland would look once countries started to recognise it. And here are some of the entries, so you can... <laughs> The thing is, I mean, it is obviously ridiculous. I mean, flying skyscrapers are obviously ridiculous. Um, although, interestingly, Blade Runner was actually set in 2019, wasn't it? That's scary. But having a blank canvas and imagining what you might be able to do with it is rather exciting. You break out of the kind of fixed way of thought that nothing's possible except for what we have now. I mean, just so you know, that is what it actually looks like. <laughs> in case anyone's thinking of moving there, which I don't recommend you do. Vit, by the way, is currently moored, I think, on the kind of Danube River somewhere with a load of boats that are in between the Serbian and Croatian line because he wants to get enough people to start going onto the land itself, which would bolster his claim for nationhood. So here's the thing about Liberland. It, it does sound slightly ridiculous, and I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But the reason he has all of this stuff and people won some money for their award, for their uh, architectural um, suggestions, and the reason they can afford a plane and a boat and a football team and a wine is because thousands of people are donating money to this, including lots and lots of very rich people. 
including people from Silicon Valley who believe, who share Witt's view that libertarian philosophy, absolute freedom at the expense of, the, of a central government, is what we should be aiming for. And moreover, they think it's where we're going. A lot of the modern technology, I mean, smartphones is an obvious example, is some of the most powerful libertarian tools that have ever been invented. It prioritizes individual freedom over central control. Look at things like cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, but more generally blockchain, which I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot about. Vit is going to use all of them because he thinks that's the kind of technology that empowers an individual and allows people to negotiate together in a kind of peer-to-peer -peer fashion rather than through some kind of massive central government. And in the years ahead, if governments can't tax us, if they can't easily enforce the law, and I think they can't when it comes to cyber security, and if they can't control their borders, which I think is going to get far harder in the future, then ask yourself, is the nation state going to be around forever? Is, as we understand it, that model that's really relatively new, is that the way we're always going to live? I doubt it very much. I mean, we've changed before. People that were living under the Roman Empire could never have imagined that it would ever collapse, but it did. And so has every other way we've lived. Why is the nation state any different? And I think it's going to come under a great deal of pressure in the coming years. And things like Liberland, ridiculous or not, are going to be examples of alternatives. And so this is my final remark. Um, whether you agree with any of these groups or ideas is almost irrelevant because history suggests that it is those radicals, it's those people that are motivated on the fringes that are the force of change in society. So you've got to know about them. You've got to listen to them. You can completely disagree with all of them. That's fine as well. And the value of these movements, in the end, I think, is not necessarily that they'll take over and we'll live under a liberland or a transhumanist future, but rather that they will stimulate citizens, stimulate all of us, to think for ourselves a bit more, to imagine different futures, to think about how technology is going to change not only our economies, but it's going to change our politics. And in the end, all technology is developed inside a political framework. And as we disrupt our economies, so we disrupt our politics. And that is going to be one of the really important trends for all of us to be aware of. Thank you very much for listening.